I've put this, this is a, just a little information slide. So um, Oxford University Department for Continuing Education, that's us, that's the website. Uh, and you'll find weekly classes, weekend schools, summer schools, um, and online courses in all sorts of different philosophies. So everything from philosophy of maths to uh, moral philosophy, etc. But go and have a look at the website. On November the 4th, we've got an open day. Um, which is the whole day and I think there are still a couple of places left it, it's quite nearly full but not quite um, but the whole day is free uh, and you can come in there are lots of different lectures I'm lecturing at four o'clock uh, my colleagues are lecturing throughout the day so if that's a day you can come do come along there's a wine reception at five o'clock and I'll <laughs> certainly be there um, <laughs> then there's the philosophical society which um, is attached to OUDC um, and it's, we've got 350 odd members um, it costs, I think it's £12 a year to, to join um, but you get £5 off every weekend that you come to so two weekends and you've, you're oh am I wrong about that? No, no, no. Uh, well I don't know about the, the cost. Um, but I, I meant to bring down from the library a copy of the review that you get every year ah. uh, as a result of being a member Yes, as a member, you get the discount on the weekends. You also get an annual review, which, is, uh, which you can contribute to if you like, but you can also read what other people say about it. Um, and there are online discussions, and there's an away a day at a beautiful place called Piggott's, which used to be owned by Eric Gill, which should cause you moral questions, but um, <laughs> I'll leave them. Uh, and on my website's here. Do come along. Do come and follow me. I'd like that. Um, and a Twitter feed if you're into tweeting and a Facebook page. Um, but all those things, just, uh, just come and explore um, and find out what else there is in philosophy if this weekend's got you interested. Um, and do come along to the Open Day if you can. Sorry, I'm supposed to say something else. The recordings? Oh, and we've got, for the last... 40 years, maybe a bit more, we've been recording every weekend school that we do. Um, so there are recordings, audio recordings of, for the last 40 years, seven weekends a year. So since 1987. So if you're a member, you can get those recordings. Unfortunately, you can't get the recordings if you're not a member because we, we've, we've got to promise the speakers that it won't go on the web. Um, and if you want to go and look at the review, it is in the library, uh, which is open after this lecture, I think. Okay, any questions about the philo Philosophical Society, etc.? <clears throat> no? Well, no? I can say that um, as a recent member, I've, I've really appreciated the regular um, emails from the secretary telling me about online. Um, uh, oh, yes. Uh, one of the things, I, I get a lot of emails telling me about philosophical goings-on in Oxford. Um, and I immediately send them to the secretary of the Philosoph Philosophical Society who sends them to every member. So you, you get to know uh, about very interesting things that are going on in Oxford. Um, Brooks, for example, has a, has a really quite interesting series of talks and so on. So, um, yes, that's uh, useful to say. Okay, let's get on with the day. Um, okay, I'm going to talk about um, philosophy of science in this lecture. Now, I could have chosen all sorts of things. What, I, what I've been doing is I've been talking about things that are a bit dark around here, isn't it? 
um, that are integral to um, philosophy, uh, logic and argument and moral and political philosophy and epistemology and metaphysics. Those are absolutely, somebody's telling me that, what's happening? Oh, I was obscuring the, is that better? What? If you're there, you amplified. Ah, okay. Can you not hear? Let me. Steve will like this if I can stand here all, all through the lecture. <laughs> it will save him doing all this. Okay, um, so I was left, I was able at this point to do almost anything I like. I could do philosophy of minds, philosophy of religion, philosophy of. Um, uh, what else could I do? Philosophy of science, which I am going to do. Um, there are all sorts of other things that, uh, that I could have chosen to do. Um, and I don't know why I've chosen science. I could have chosen anything. I did choose science. Um, but I'd just like to say that the thing about philosophy, because you're standing back, I, I talked yesterday about the picture of the world that you construct, uh, sorry, the world of which you construct a picture and the picture of the world that you construct. And in philosophy, you stand back from every type of picture of the world. So there's a philosophy of everything. Um, so if you do zoology, you're constructing a picture of a certain aspect of the world. If you do philosophy of zoology, you're standing back and you're looking at what zoologists are doing and asking yourself what the concepts are that make up, I mean, what's the concept of a genus, for example, or something like that, um, and what sort of arguments are integral to this discipline. So anything that human beings can think about, there's a philosophy of the thinking about it. Makes philosophy very interesting. There is nothing that's out of our purview. So we're doing philosophy of science. And um, yes, okay, our aim is to stand back from science. What we're looking at is what scientists aim to do, what, what their intention is in doing what they do, um, and also what their strategies are for doing it. Um, and what are concepts they use, for example, you, you can't do science without the concept of causation, um, but it's not the job of a scientist to sit and think, well, what is causation? Um, it's the job of a philosopher of science to stand back and say, well, what, what is causation? Could causation go backwards? What are the relata of the causal relation? Um, are they facts? Are they states of affairs? Are they events? What, what's the, um, so we have different theories of causation. Um, and all of this is part of philosophy of science. We also look at induction which is the argument that's very characteristic of the science. So we extrapolate from observations done in the past to observations we'll make in the future. So we've seen the sun rise every day in the history of the world. Uh, we expect the sun to rise tomorrow. Um, now, that sort of argument, notice that there's a premise that's suppressed that what goes on in the past will also go on in the future. And that is... David Hume, the philosopher David Hume, called it the principle of the uniformity of nature. And he pointed out that you cannot do inductive reasoning without assuming that principle. And there's no possibility whatsoever of justifying that principle, because you can't justify it deductively, because no um, contradiction is generated by thinking that the sun won't rise tomorrow. Um, and you can't justify it inductively because that would be going round in a circle. 
Um, so we can say, well, the principle of the uniformity of nature have worked in the past. In the past, it's always been true that the future has been like the past. Therefore, in the future, the future will be like the past. Do you see you're relying on the very principle you're trying to justify? Um, so science has a, a science, um, I like to say it relies on faith, but it gets Bill very excited when I say <laughs> something like that. Um, it's, it's not faith in God, of course, it's faith in the, in the uniformity of nature, uh, faith in, if you like, the, the, the laws of nature carrying on as they were before. Okay, so that, that's what philosophy of science is. Uh, and not everyone is a fan of philosophy, philosophy of science. So Richard Feynman, the physicist, once said that philosophy of science is as much use to scientists as ornithology is to birds. Okay, I'd just like to ask you, do you think that ornithology is no use to birds? Who thinks that ornithology... Okay, Bill thinks that ornithology is no use to birds. Somebody here? Okay. I, I think ornithology has been hugely useful to birds. There are many birds alive today that wouldn't be alive if it weren't for ornithology. Um, so I think it's not true that ornithology is no use to birds. But um, it is true that knowledge of ornithology has never helped a single bird do a single thing. Um, this is true. Um, and Feynman... I don't like to accuse a, an eminent and, and brilliant scientist of not thinking very straight, but he wasn't thinking very straight, was he? He was, he was conflating ornithology and knowledge of <coughs> ornithology. Um, it's, ornithology is definitely of use to birds, but knowledge of ornithology isn't. Um, and in exactly the same way, scientists can do their thing completely independently of any knowledge of philosophy of science. No scientist need do a philosophy of science course in order to be better at science. Um, and what's more, science wouldn't be as successful as it is if scientists weren't good at doing their thing independently of philosophy of science. Um, no denying that at all. Um, but whereas birds are incapable of reflecting on themselves and their beliefs and their actions, human beings can and do reflect on themselves and their actions, and arguably their ability to do this contributes hugely to their success. For example, remember I said yesterday, it's only when you step back and consider your beliefs that truth comes into the picture. You can only know that your own beliefs are true or false if you stand back and reflect on your beliefs. So reflection brings truth and falsehood into the picture. It also brings justification to the picture. Um, and so a scientist cannot do what he does without stepping back and reflecting. And I think that it's jolly good that some of us do this, even though we don't want scientists to stop doing science and start doing philosophy of science, but surely it's a good thing that some of us stand back and ask what, what it's all about. Okay, so science is held in high regard, uh, justifiably so, because it's phenomenal success in doing things people want done, getting vaccines, anaesthetic, I mean, I don't have to tell you. Um, why do you think science is so hugely successful? There are lots of possible answers to that. Um, but one answer you might give is that it involves reasoning logically from objective facts. Okay, the, uh, scientists are very keen about this. Their, their objectivity is very important to them, quite rightly so. Um, and also the fact that they reason logically. 
Um, well, we've already had a look at what it is to reason logically. In other words, we've looked at what it is to evaluate, to, ha to make an argument, to go from some observations that you've made by logical steps to a conclusion. And we've looked at what it is to evaluate an argument, i.e. it's to um, ask whether the conclusion follows from the premise and also to ask whether the premises are true. Okay, do you remember we did that in the first session when we looked at Descartes' arguments? Um, and what I want to do in this session is to examine the notion of an objective fact um, because objective facts are very important to science, aren't they? Um, okay. Here are some putative facts about facts. Um, facts are a firm and reliable ground from which we deduce scientific theories. Would anyone disagree with that? Now, you're all madly trying to be philosophical and to think of an objection to that, but you, you probably can't because most people would accept that. Um, what about facts are things of which we're certain? And I'm putting in at least as certain as possible because if I've left you in the, behind the veil of perception, you no longer think that you can be certain about anything. <laughs> so th facts are things that we can be as certain of as we can be certain. Okay, anyone want to disagree with that? But you might not call it a fact until you've got empirically established it, until you've done the best you can to empirically establish it. And, and it would be a provisional fact. Uh, and it would be provisional, yes, okay, okay. you're right. Okay. No, that's fair enough. I think that's an important. You that it is a fact and then go on. Yeah, and then you go and prove it's a fact, if you can. Okay, facts are accessible to the extended senses of careful, unprejudiced observers. By extended senses, I mean that you, there's things that you can't see without a microscope or a telescope or, or something like that. So you might need to extend your senses by various means. But once you've done that... Um, facts are the sort of thing that, on the whole, are observable. The facts that ground science, at least, are observable facts. Um, and you will observe them if you're careful and if you're unprejudiced. You know, you, unfortunately, we all know... Um, this is Actually, I should have done this, perhaps. You would have enjoyed it. Has anyone done the gorilla? Yeah. OK, so, some people, <laughs> yes. but not everyone. OK, I, what I could do is I could put up a, a five-minute video that has people two teams, one in black and one in white, and they're playing basketball, they're throwing a ball to each other, and I ask you to watch the team in black uh, and to count how many times that they pass the ball between them. And you're watching, counting the times the team in black is passing the ball, and you completely fail to see the gorilla that walks into the scene and beats his chest and then walks out again. And you'll miss that. And why will you miss it? Because you're not expecting to see it. Um, and uh, there are all sorts of uh, um, tricks I could give you like that that show that you will see what you're expecting to see and you won't see what you're not expecting to see unless you're very careful. Um, and scientists try um, to, to not expect or not see what they expect to see, not see what isn't there and so on. So that's what I mean by careful and prejudiced observers. 
Um, and another thing that we might, well, I should ask you, anyone have any objections to that one? It's, you're absolutely right, you're very different, but you try and be as unprejudiced as possible. Because if a scientist is desperate to find something, they are going to be slightly prejudiced towards looking for it and perhaps... But that's not a good scientist, is it? No, no, I, I mean, what you're hoping, if you're doing science sincerely and trying to do it well, you will try and identify your prejudices and put them on one side. You, it, so instead of trying to prove what you believe to be correct, you'll try and disprove what you believe to be correct, and, and so on. That, so that's what I mean there. Not, not that everyone does succeed in doing this, but that's the aim. Was that a question done here? No, no, I'm just thinking scientists. I know. Who are prejudiced? <laughs> no, surely not. Okay, and the last one is facts, facts are prior to and independent of theory. So we, first we observe what's happening, then we construct our theories. So we observe a phenomenon, we think, goodness, that needs an explanation. So all the cows in the fields are dying, that's our observation. We form a hypothesis, maybe it's magic. Um, and I just saw that old woman with a cat walk past, obviously she's doing it. Um, and then we test that hypothesis and throw it out very quickly, I hope, rather than burn the old woman with the cat. Um, okay, so here are some putative facts about facts. Everyone roughly happy? Somebody wants to ask a question there. Uh, I've got two points, really. One is, um, sometimes you've got theory which predicts that um, some solution is going to turn purple when you add something to it, and it turns... Um, Can you speak it, up just a bit? It's it turns the wrong colour, and that then prompts you to make a further investigation. Mm -hmm. So it's the thing that set that in trade is not independent of the previous thing. Of the theory that you... No, OK, you, you're right to pick that out. I mean, and again, going back to what I said, that your beliefs come into view when something goes wrong. So here you are believing that if you put this into water, it'll turn purple. I can't remember what you said, but anyway, it'll turn purple. Um, and in fact, it turns red. Something's wrong, isn't it? Either there's something wrong with the thing you're putting into the liquid, or there's something wrong with the liquid, or there's something wrong with, with your hands. Perhaps your hands are, are, are also touching the wood. Something has gone wrong. Um, and at that point, you need to form another theory to explain. So again, you've got a different observation. Yeah. The water hasn't turned something unexpected. You need an explanation, and you'll form a theory to explain right. the observation. But the other thing was, um, does this lot sort of cover social science as well? Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the physical sciences. Um, well, I think the social sciences would, would also... I mean... Uh, Firm and reliable might have to be modified slightly um, here. They're things of which we can be, I think they'd want to claim that. Um, this wouldn't be true, probably, for social science, um, but this would. So I think it, all of those except that one would probably also apply. Um, but, but I am thinking of the physical sciences, yes. Just on the social sciences, isn't it, that there are so many variables involved that use statistics to, to help you use the scientific method or apply the scientific method? 
Well, we use statistics an awful lot, also in the physical sciences, but, but yes, we use them more in the social sciences. So my question was, so is the difference between logical uh, study, sorry, logical theory and scientific method, that scientific method starts with observation and logic doesn't, it can start with... Um, well, I've got a, a slide that I, I, it would take me a while to find, so let me see if I can draw it. Um, science, you've got observations down here. So you see a white swan and another white swan and another white swan and another white swan. And by inductive logic, you form a hypothesis. All swans are white. So observations of lots of white swans and no black swans or whatever, no green swans and so on. Um, and from here you go, well, if all swans are white, you go by deductive logic that says that the next swan that I see will be white um, and you see, have an observation as well. And that's a test of the theory, if you like. And of course, if you see a black swan, you've falsified the theory. Um, and so logic comes in here and here, and observation comes in here and here. And if we're not doing science, we're doing philosophy, the observations will be reflections rather than observations, but we still use induction and deduction. Okay, any other questions about the things that I've said so far? I'm going, to t I'm going to try something on you that... No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'll do it in the question time. Um, okay. Right. So, so these are some facts about facts. So, so what we're, uh, we're looking at science and we're saying, what, what is it that makes science so successful? And we're thinking, well, one of the things is that the theories of science are based on objective facts. And this is, these are things that we believe to be true about objective facts. Okay. Well, there are lots of different sorts of facts. So, for example, there are facts that are states of affairs. There are facts like there are craters on the moon. Okay, that's a fact, isn't it? Um, there are also perceptual experiences. We saw yesterday that when we were talking about Descartes, these are also facts. So, you see craters on the moon, and that experience of craters on the moon is itself a fact or a type of fact. Okay, so these are facts of two different types. There are also thoughts. There are craters on the moon. Okay, that's a thought. And it's a fact that I think there are craters on the moon. And that's a different from that from the fact that there are craters on the moon. Okay, I can see you, a couple of you are thinking about this. But okay, so there are craters on the moon. That's a fact, let's say or a putative fact at least, and then there's my thought that there are craters on the moon, that's a different type of fact. Um, then there are statements, there are craters on the moon, okay, it's a fact that Marianne just said there are craters on the moon, isn't it? That's another type of fact. So there are, there are four different types of fact here. Um, which type of fact do you think we derive scientific theories from? Put up your hands um, before, without, instead of shouting out the answer. What sort of fact do we derive scientific theories? Put up your hand rather than shouting out. 
Go on, Anne. I'd say perceptual. You take the first one, okay? Yeah, and second. the second one. Oh, right, okay. You think the second one. Both of you think the second one. Okay. What do you think? You think the first one, okay? Anyone, David? Seeing and thinking are very different things. Because, okay, let me just convince you of that. Um, Okay, you see that. Okay, um, and if I put it's a duck, and that's its beak, okay, and I put it's a rabbit, this doesn't change, but your thought does, depending on what I put underneath. You've what? You don't, you can see, you have an experience of what I've drawn on the boards, don't you? Uh, no, it's an experience. So, look at the Malalaya lines. Um, have I got that the right way round? You look at these and you think, oh, look, they're the same length. Uh, no, they're, they're different lengths. This one is longer than that one. But because you know the Malalaya illusion, you overthink and you think, no, they're not the same length. They just appear to be the same length. So, again, you've got to distinguish between appearance and reality. Um, and your belief here, you, there's an appearance and then there's the thought, the way you interpret that experience. And you might interpret it that way. So any illusion where you have the, the woman in, with the hat or the woman with the... Any illusion like that, you, there's something you see and then there's your interpretation of it. Uh, the latter is a thought, the, the former is a, a perception, um, if you like. Those of you who thinking that it's difficult to distinguish thoughts and perceptions are not wrong, by the way. I'll say something about that in a minute. Go I on. Think all four. You think all four? Okay, all four are needed. Okay, that's interesting. First one. You think the first one, so you agree with Janet that, it's, that there are craters on the moon? I think the first two. You think the first two? Okay. Well, I mean, the fact is, if there are craters on the moon but we don't see them, that, that would be a good reason for thinking of the other one as well. Okay, let, let's go on. So Descartes accept the concept of states of affairs then? Oh, he would. No, no, don't. Um, do you remember I said afterwards uh, that Descartes is not a sceptic? Descartes uses the method of scepticism to show that actually we can have knowledge. Um, he would accept that. So when you're, you're absolutely right in thinking that when he's in hyperbolical doubt at the end of meditation one, he would say that we couldn't know that. He never claims that there aren't craters on the moon. You know, he never says there isn't an external world. He says that we've got to treat, when we're playing the method of doubt, we've got to treat our beliefs about the physical world as if they're false. He never says they're false, um, because that would go further than he's got reason to believe, hasn't he? That, that would be going too far. Can I just ask you, if you're doing the last one, there are craters on the moon, would that be like saying there are pigs flying in the air? You're just making a statement, it doesn't mean anything. 
Um, well, it does have a meaning, does it? doesn't it? I mean, there are... Um, I, I could... S- I mean, there are statements of all sorts of different types, and each of these statements, if I make them, is a fact. Um, if I utter, there are pigs... What did you say? Pigs flying through the air. There are pigs flying through the air. OK, it's a fact that Marianne just said there are pigs flying oh. through the air, isn't it? Um, and the question of whether what I said has meaning is a separate question. Um, and the question of whether it's true is, a, is also a separate question. Um, all these questions... Th- but that it's a fact that I said it um, is, is a, a claim quite different from and it means this and it's true. Da-da-da-da. OK, let's have a look. Which type of fact do you think we derive scientific theories? Well, uh, da-da-da-da. I do go on, don't I? Um, the state of affairs of there being craters on the moon... This can't ground anything, as you rightly say, um, you at the back who said you, you sorry, you at the front, um, you can't, it can't ground anything unless it's perceived, and it also can't enter into logical relations. Okay, if you're going to derive a scientific theory from a fact, the fact has to be the sort of thing that enters into logical relations, doesn't it? Because you can't derive anything from something that doesn't enter into logical relations. Um, so firstly, this, facts of this type have to be perceived. They can't enter into logical relations, and that seems to actually ban them from being the facts of, on which science is based. Uh, it cannot be the sort of fact <coughs> on which scientific theories are based. So the fact, facts of the type of there are craters on the moon is not the sort of fact on which science is based. Okay, let's have another. Plenty of time to ask questions later if you're madly thinking of questions you'd like to ask. Okay, perceptual experiences of craters on the moon. A few of you said you thought it was this. Um, The trouble with perceptual experiences is that they're essentially subjective, aren't they? Uh, No two observers ever enjoy the same perceptual experience. Now, by (coughs) that, I don't mean that you see red where I'm seeing green, necessarily. I just mean there's... You have, are experiencing one token of the duck rabbit and I'm experiencing another and you're experiencing yet another. So there are 50 experiences of the duck rabbit in this room. There's only one duck rabbit on the board, but there are 50 experiences of it. Um, and each one differs um, at the very least in its spatiotemporal relations to, to this thing on the board because none of you occupies the same location in space-time. So no two observers ever enjoy the same perceptual experience. And they are, they're just not objective facts. And if the facts that we want to ground science on are objective facts, they can't be perceptual experiences. There is also the other problem, but this just shows that they are subjective. Um, there's no way of knowing... Well, stand up, you two, Anne and Alan, and turn round... They both happen to be wearing beautiful colours. What? I'm only wearing this because my wife bought it. (laughs) (laughs) And clearly, I see it the same way as his wife does. (laughs) Maybe not. What you perceived yesterday as yellow, it is in fact lime green. Lime green, yes, I I thought it might be. Yeah. Um, but you, you might be looking at Alan's shirt and seeing what I see when I see Anne's jumper. 
and you might be looking at Anne's jumper and seeing what I see when and there's no way we're ever going to find out are we uh, no way at all and yet we both call Alan's shirt pink and Anne's jumper lime green <laughs> or yellow um, what that shows us is, is that the um, what a colour is is not the quality of the subjective experience that you have when you see the colour you've got to have a subjective experience but actually it doesn't matter at all what the subjective experience is as long as as you grew up people told you that <coughs> things that look like that are pink and and you have learned to associate whatever you experience when you look at Alan's shirt with pink um, so the color the quality of the experience that you have just drops out it's totally subjective. I have no idea what your subjective experiences are like, and you have no idea what my subjective experiences are like. We can all use inductive inference to say it's likely that all human beings have the same experiences, but, but this is not something that can ever be tested, is it, empirically? Okay, so um, perception. So the first type of facts, states of affairs, are not the sort of facts on which we base science because you can't derive anything from them logically. Uh, second type of facts, the perceptual experiences are not the sort of fact on which we base science because they're subjective, not objective. And we want the facts on which we base science to be as objective as possible. Um, okay, thoughts about craters on the moon. The thing about thoughts is they're not essentially subjective. Um, I can share my thought with you in the way that I can't share my um, uh, experience okay so I think that Alan's shirt is pink and you know exactly what I think test I think um, so you know exactly what I think about Alan's shirt even though you don't know what I experience when I see Alan's shirt so thoughts are not subjective they're objective good Okay, what's more, they do enter into rational relations. Remember, we were looking at the properties of thoughts yesterday. So thoughts can be true, but thoughts actually enter into rational relations with each other. So this thought and this thought entail that thought. These two thoughts are contradictory. These two thoughts are consistent. They could both be true together. So whereas physical objects are spatio-temporally related to each other and thoughts aren't. You don't get two thoughts on top of each other, do you, except metaphorically. Um, you don't get two thoughts in between each other except temporarily. Um, spatio-temporal relations do not characterise the thoughts in our mind. Um, but rational relations do characterise them and they don't characterise physical objects which are characterised by spatio-temporal relations. So two things here, they're not essentially subjective, they're objective um, and they do enter into logical relations and so you can derive things from them. Um, but my thought is accessible to you only when I express it as a meaningful statement. So when I tell you that I think Alan's shirt is pink um, you can get at my thought. Um, if I thought it was horrible, which I don't, of course, I would keep quiet about that one. So you would never know if that's what I thought unless I chose to tell you later in private or, or something like that. So until I express my thought, and I might actually do that by behaviour. 
Um, I'm told I have a very expressive face and, and that I would be lousy at bridge. Um, so you might be able to guess my thought, even if I don't express it in language, because I somehow express it in my behaviour. Um, so I've got to express it somehow, but expressing it as a meaningful statement is, is the best way I can do I mean, students sometimes try and convince me that they, they're thinking a perfectly sensible, meaningful thought that they can't express in language. And okay, maybe they don't have the right vocabulary, but I can help them with that, and so I can put this to them and see if they know that they can't, they can't express, you know, I'm just, I'm not getting there. They've got this very meaningful, very important thought that can't be, you know, eventually I've got to decide there isn't a thought there, actually, because the thing about thoughts is they can be expressed in language. And we've already seen that some things can't be your perceptions your experiences might not be expressible in language um, because pink doesn't do it. Um, pink doesn't do it. Um, but uh, the idea that you can have a propositional thought that cannot be expressed in language is nonsense. Okay, so statements are not accessible to the senses of observers. So do you remember again we thought about something about facts is they've got to be accessible to senses. Um, trouble with statements is they're not extensive, uh, accessible to senses, and that doesn't matter how, how careful or unprejudiced the observer or how extended the senses. I mean, you can add to your senses whatever you like. This isn't going to help you. I mean, animals have perfectly good senses. Probably their senses are better than ours. Um, that doesn't help them with meaning, does it? Because um, meaning is something that you need our type of mind to understand at least propositions. If I say there's a Marmite sandwich in the fridge, okay, there's no dog's going to understand that. I can think of counter-examples as I'm speaking, but anyway. <laughs> that's a... Okay, um, so they can, uh, these uh, statements can only be understood when others exercise their understanding of the language in which the statement is couched. So statements can enter into rational relations in such a way that we can deduce things from them. They're accessible to everyone who understands the language in which they're expressed, so they're in principle accessible to anyone who will learn English, if it's my language. Um, and what's more, we can be certain of their existence, or as certain as possible of the existence of statements. Um, and if facts are to be the foundation of science, in virtue of all the things that we looked at before, then facts are statements. And people often find that quite surprising. Um, they think of facts like, I, I mean, I was interested in that you didn't all put your hands up and say craters on the moon is the sort of fact on which science is based, because that's what scientists always say. Um, when I teach these at the doctoral training centres, physicists and things, um, they'll nearly all say that the facts that ground science are facts like craters on the moon. Um, but actually, they can't be. It's got to be statements about craters on the moon. Um, and just to explain why statements on the moon seem, sorry, craters on the moon seem to be the facts, um, again, going back to what I said yesterday about the distinction between the world that we picture, craters on the moon, and our picture of the world, beliefs and statements about craters on the moon, um, we don't notice the latter, do we? Mostly, what we're conscious of is the world that we picture 
not our pictures of the world. So when I'm talking to you about there being craters on the moon, I'm not conscious of the language that I'm using. I'm conscious only of the craters on the moon that I'm talking about. So craters on the moon make true the facts of, about statements and about thoughts that actually ground science. Um, so the facts that ground science are statements about craters on the moon, and these are made true by craters on the moon. Um, so nobody's suggesting that craters on the moon are irrelevant, um, but they're there only as truth makers, not as the facts that ground science. Um, okay, so lots of people are surprised to discover that the facts surrounding scientific theories are statements about the world rather than states of affairs in the world. Here I am going on again. Um, we use language so easy, easily that we become completely unconscious of it unless something goes wrong. I mean, you, you, we'll all have had experiences of talking to somebody and they say something that strikes you as mad and then you discover that they mean something slightly different by something by a word that you've be, both been using up till now to mean you thought the same thing, but you discover that they have a slightly different meaning of it. Um, okay, and in the same way, so statements are one type of fact, thoughts are a different type of fact, and in exactly the same way, we're unconscious of the thoughts of the world that we have. It's the world about which we think that we're conscious of. But the language in which we do science and the thoughts that we express in that language are absolutely crucial. And if you doubt that, um, it's a necessary condition of discerning truth that you discern meaning. And if scientists are aiming to discover the truth, which is what a lot of them will say is the aim of science, um, they've got to understand meaning first. And if you doubt that, tell me what that means. Or tell me if it's true, rather. Does anyone know whether this is true? How many Russians speak? Oh, you're right, you're you, you be quiet. <laughs> I was wondering whether Mike was going to be here, who's Russian. Who's, uh, okay, does anyone recognise that? Okay, you've probably got it already. All happy families are unhappy in their own way. And it's the first sentence of um, uh, Anna Karenina. Um, so, but do you see that without knowing the meaning of that sentence, you cannot determine its truth? You've got to assume the meaning of something before you can decide how to tell whether it's true. But the, if you don't realise that, if because we're all speaking the same language, we're assuming that the meaning is the same, that we understand each other's meaning. Um, things can go badly wrong here. Anyone remember this? <coughs> God almighty. <I'm> a <laughs> I mean, it's almost inconceivable, isn't it? But Lockheed Martin and NASA thought that they understood each other and they were right <laughs> passing each other by um, talk about divided by the same language um, so again if you think there's meaning there and of course when you're speaking the same language it's very easy to assume that you are understanding meaning when in fact you're not it's not often as egregious as this the misunderstanding but um, 
as you can imagine, that cost quite a lot of money. To Okay, so there are two sorts of knowledge in determining the truth of every statement. You've got to know the meaning of the statement. You've got to know what it means. And secondly, you've then got to determine whether it's true. And that's going to involve probably looking at the world. And of course, that might involve looking at thoughts or looking at statements or something, because they're part of the world as well. But you've got to have both these bits of knowledge before you can do any science. And you, well, it's the job of philosophers to acquire knowledge about meaning and the concepts that are expressed by words. Okay, we look at words, we look at concepts, and we say, well, what is causation? What is truth? What is existence? You know, if, you, if you're going to say that this entails that, what does entails mean? Um, and it's the job of scientists to acquire knowledge about the world, and so the truth of statements that are already assumed to have meaning. Um, and if, if philosophers assume empirical claims, they can go wrong in their findings. It's not the job of philosophers to assume empirical claims. We should be, if we, if we need to use empirical claims, we should look to science, um, because that's the job of scientists. Uh, if scientists assume meanings, on the other hand, that are wrong, they can go very wrong in their findings. So um, you may have heard about the claims about free will made by Benjamin Libet uh, some time ago and by John Dylan Haynes much more recently. Um, they both claim that um, they can show empirically that human beings don't have free will. Um, so for those who are not familiar with the experiments, um, Libet found that there are what he calls action potentials that you can that register uh, um, on machinery uh, a few seconds before the conscious decision is made to do something. So the thought was that the brain has already brain has already decided to do something before the person decides what to do. Uh, and if that's the case, how can we have free will? Do you see how this was claimed to be an empirical? Uh, and John Dylan Haynes does pretty much the same thing, only with more advanced equipment. He did it very recently. Um, and quite honestly, philosophers have just sort of fallen around laughing um, about this, um, particularly about the Libet thing, um, because, I mean, he may be a very, very good scientist, but actually, if you're going to make claims about free will, you need to know what free will is. You need to know what intentions are. You need to know what desires are. You need to know what beliefs are. And if you're going to make claims about empirical observations showing things about these things, you know, you're and assuming a meaning without looking at what that meaning actually is, you get into trouble. Um, many people believe. Well, okay, this is generally, I'm always being told that there's no such thing as free will and that this has been established empirically. Um, and philosophers generally agree that both these papers, all these papers in this area, show no such thing. Um, and one of the problems, just one of the problems, is that free will itself is such a difficult concept. So determinism is usually thought to be incompatible with free will. So um, determinism is the view that uh, any event has a cause and what it's caused by is the laws of nature in conjunction with the initial conditions. 
So if you set the initial conditions and you run the laws of nature, you will get out whatever you put in. Okay, that's determinism. And a hard determinist is someone who believes that every event is determined, causally determined. Now, if that's the case, you might think there's no room for free will because that means that there is some, or there are some events, in other words, the free choices made by rational animals um, that don't have a cause that's determined by the laws of nature, etc. Um, but actually, most philosophers these days are not hard determinists. And most philosophers these days are actually also not libertarians. They're, they're not people who believe that there's free will independently of determinism. De uh, determinism. Most people these days are soft determinists. I'm not, but most people are. A soft determinist is someone who believes that causal determinism is consistent with free will. Because when we freely choose to do something, we're determined to make that choice by our own desires and our beliefs. And if we're determined by our own desires and beliefs, that is free will. Okay, do you see? So, and, and actually, everybody loves soft determinism. And you can see why, because it allows us to have our intuition that we're free, which we'd all quite like to keep. Um, but it also allows us to be hard-nosed scientists and agree that everything's causally determined. Um, so soft determinism is a really nice theory. It allows us to have everything we want. Sad it's not true, isn't it? But <laughs> okay, so if compatibilism or soft determinism is true, then, then we know straight away that the experiments show nothing about free will. Because even if they do show that the actions are determined by uh, action potentials and so on, they don't show that we don't also have free will. And, and that's a sort of, I mean, I talked to my first year undergraduates about that very quickly. Um, but it, no scientist would learn about something like that unless they learn something about philosophy. Um, and they have, a scientist has no more time to learn about philosophy than I have to learn about quantum mechanics more than I have to. Um, so, even if hard determinism is true, the concepts used in the experiment need to be properly understood. Okay, let me ask you a question. You all understand the word belief. You all understand the word desire. What's the difference between beliefs and desires? Tell me. No, not you, or you. <laughs> Sorry. I'm asking people unaffected by philosophy. <laughs> You're contaminated. Desires are what? Involve emotions. Do all desires involve emotions? Want. Um, we usually express a desire by saying, I want something. Yes, so wanting comes into desiring. Um, but how does that distinguish it from believing? Desiring suggests that you have a choice, because if you desire to do something, you could desire not to do it. Whereas belief suggests that there is a hard line of what you should do. Um, if you're thinking it's religious you no, know, I'm not. The, yes, by beliefs, I'm meaning uh, what's causally implicated in our actions. I'm not talking about religious beliefs. I'm not. I'm th thinking about beliefs like, I would like a glass of water, type of thing. Now, okay, I've. Got, I want a drink. 
I believe that there's water in my glass. Therefore, I go over and I pick up the glass and I drink from it. Um, beliefs and desires interact to produce actions, don't they? They come together to produce an intention. So I want a drink. I believe there's a drink over there. That makes me believe that I could go over there and get it. And that produces an intention to, to move my body and go over there. All, all these things, it's quite... Desires motivate us. Beliefs don't motivate us. I mean, I can think there's a drink over there for as long as I like. It won't get me to move at all, will it? I've, I've got to have the desire for a drink before I'll actually move. So desires are motivators. Beliefs are, are like the guidance mechanism. So I want a drink. It's my beliefs tell me that there's a drink over there, that I could go over there and get it, and, and so on. So, so, and there's a whole theory of action um, on which there are books that would fill this room, um, distinguishing beliefs from desires and distinguishing them both from intentions and so on and so forth. And you've really got to know something about that theory before you start pontificating on what your experiments tell you about action. So, scientists and philosophers need each other if we're going to discover the truth about the world that we live in. And especially if we're going to discover the truth about ourselves, the truth about our capacity for reason, our capacity for freedom, etc. Um, so, um, okay, let's, let's move on. A couple of you mentioned the fact that, that um, science is, is um, I forget the word you use, but... Uh, Temporary doesn't quite hack it, but provisional, thank you. Um, once we recognise that the facts on which science is based are statements, um, we can also recognise that they can be false. Notice that craters on the moon can't be false, can they? They can't be true, they can't be false. Craters on the moon are not the sort of thing that admit of truth values. It's only thoughts or statements that admit of truth values. Um, so here are some statements that seemed obviously true when we first looked at them, but we now know to be false. Um, okay, I'll let you read them while I have a drink, because I want to drink and believe it. <laughs> so, our observations told us things that seemed obviously true, and um, we had to discover more um, in, other t in order to discover that they were false, which is exactly the um, phenomenon that you were talking about when you were talking about putting the stick into water and discovering it didn't turn purple, it went red or something. So when you're surprised by an observation, um, you need a new theory. Um, okay, so there's no certainty, even at the level of the objective facts on which we ground our theory, and that's because the facts on which we ground our theory are statements. And the thing about statements is they can be either true or false. There are very few statements that are necessarily true. They tend to be mathematical. Um, so reflecting, thing, reflecting on the scientific method tells us all sorts of things that might be of use to science. Um, 
And even if they're not, I mean, I, I pointed out earlier that there are perfectly good scientists who know nothing about philosophy of science and that couldn't be less interested in the philosophy of science. Um, but actually, there are lots of people who do... I mean, some, if any of you are coming to the multiverse weekend, the emergent multiverse next week, you've got two people who started off as physicists who both became philosophers of physicists because they found the activity of philosophizing about physics more rewarding than doing physics. Thank goodness that not everyone thinks that. Um, okay, so science, I'm, I don't want to knock science at all. It's one of the most important things humans do. Um, but that makes it surely good to apply our reason to it, to, to look at science and stand back from it and ask ourselves some questions about it. And there are some references um, on all of these things, including the ones, I mean, you, you can look at them and you can decide whether you think I may be wrong about some of the things I've said. Okay, we've got quarter of an hour for questions, but then we've got a whole question and answer session afterwards. So does anyone have any questions? Um, yep, let's. You were saying that it's not necessarily true that that means you have free will. If the world is, if everything is causally determined, but soft compatibilism is saying that you can have free will and be. That's what compatibilism or soft determinism says. That's what you're interested in. Is that the... Um, no, Did that's you not... I didn't tell you my argument at all, um, but I will do. Hang on. That's probably the, the nearest slide that I've got to, to what you want. Um, I'm treating them interchangeably, yes, yeah. Um, I, I, I can't think of any distinction, but I'm sure we can think of one if, we, if we're put to it. Okay, um, hard determinism is the view that every single event in the universe, including all of our actions, um, is um, causally determined by the initial conditions, the conditions just before that action and the laws of nature. So if you set things out this way and then you run the laws of nature as you are, you will get out whatever you get out. And if you do it again, which you can't of course, but if you do it again, you'd get out exactly the same thing. Um, so all our actions are determined. Um, that's hard determinism. Then you've got libertarianism that thinks it's not the case that every action is such that it's causally determined because there are some actions, specifically our freely chosen actions, that are not determined, they're freely chosen by us. So that, that's hard determinism and libertarianism. And you can see that the hard determinists have got to say that there is no such thing as um, free will or it looks as if they've got to say, so they've got, they deny that we're free. And I always, as I say this, think of my colleague standing on the windowsill of his room in Brasenose, threatening to jump out just to show <laughs> that he was free to do that if he wanted to. <laughs> um, I don't think it worked. But <laughs> and the libertarian um, has got to deny that every event is causally determined. 
So there's counterintuitive feel about each of them, isn't there? Because that you're free is something that's really very central to you being who you are. Okay, it may not be things like you're free to stand up and walk out of this room, but um, you're free to um, go to prison because you don't think the poll tax ought to be imposed or something like that. You have free choices um, that it might be hard to make at times. So your freedom is actually an integral part of your humanity. Um, so it's actually quite difficult to turn around and say we're not free. And that's what hard determinism seems to imply. But it also is rather difficult in these scientific times to say that we're not causally determined. Um, so isn't it nice that the compatibilists come along and say, well, actually, we can have both hard determinism and libertarianism. So you can have your freedom and you can have your scientific respectability um, by saying that you're hard um, it's hard determinism, sorry, it's causally determined and it's free. Okay, why do I not accept this? Um, well, I have trouble with the So we can think it's all right about tokens, but let's take a type action, sorry, a token action, and we looked at types and tokens yesterday, um, so that there are, there's a type of thing, a set, and its members are tokens of that thing. Um, so you've got um, a type of action writing on the board and you've got a token action, Marianne writing on the board at 10.30 on da-da-da-da. Do you see the difference between a type and a token? So take the token action uh, of me writing on the board now and the compatibilist has got to say that that action is both causally determined and freely chosen by me. And surely it can't be. Haven't we got a logical problem here? How can something, one particular action, a given token action, how can it be both free and determined? And the story that's told is the idea that, that what it's determined by is my desires and my beliefs. Um, and that that is freedom. Well, I, have a, I don't see that that gets quite what we need. What we need is the idea that it's not causally determined in order to be free. So I, I have a real problem with compatibilism. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I think it would be, I mean, unfortunately, it would be nice that P is no reason to believe that P. Um, I'll come to you in a second. Do, do you see that that's called wishful thinking? Because I want to believe P is no reason at all to believe P. And we all, we'd all like to be compatibilists. Um, but, but I don't think it's as easy as that. Bill, go on, you're going to disagree with me. You're emphasising that you know, we would like to be compatibilists. It'd be nice if it was true. And so on. But there's a different reason for going for something like compatibilism, which is you cannot exercise your free will without determinism. Um, in what you're relying on the laws of nature. Oh, I see. That you want to do. Um, that's certainly true, but that's not. That doesn't mean that we're not free. I mean, yes, no, indeed, I am. It's, it's I mean, as I go over there to get my glass. Yeah, my point is, it's nothing to do with whether we'd like it or not. You cannot exercise free will without using determinism. But that's not compatibilism. It's a version. No, it's not. Oh. <laughs> no. Um, All right. Give it another name then. Because, because the libertarian <laughs> could accept that, couldn't they? My point. 
The libertarian believes that some actions are not causally determined at all, but they could accept that no action could be successfully performed without the physical world being causally deterministic. That, that, the thing that, what impresses me about this, this difficulty is not this business where wouldn't it be nice if, if we had free will? Okay. It, it's that there is another problem. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't want to suggest for one minute. I, I mean, there are, yes, actually, you, you're absolutely right to pick me up on this. Um, I'm always telling people they've got to exercise the principle of charity if they do philosophy. And the principle of charity is if your interlocutor said something that you think sounds mad, um, it's probably your bad interpretation, not their madness. Um, and in the same way, I shouldn't be um, saying of my colleagues who do believe in compatibilism that the reason they believe in compatibilism is they're engaging in wishful thinking. That's just rude. <laughs> uh, and of course that's not their reason they have perfectly good reasons that, that I mean again there are many books about this um, talking about what compatibilism is and so on so Bill's absolutely right that there are better arguments for this than the wishful thinking one that I've given and I'm rather ashamed now that's thank you Bill, <laughs> that's alright can, can I be really stupid and of course. ask you why you think that you as a token writing on the board is causally determined uh, well, that's not what I'm saying. What, what I'm saying is, if I were a compatibilist, if I were a soft determinist, I'd have to believe that this token action is, has two properties. One is it is causally determined, and the other is that it's freely chosen. And I'm saying that nothing can have both those properties. So what do you think it is? Uh, well, I think it's, uh, well, my view is, rather <laughs> is a bit complicated. I don't think that that action is a, is a freely chosen action. Actually, I think the vast majority of human actions are causally determined. Um, so I think anything that I do here is almost certainly, but when my freedom comes in is generally in moral circumstances. Um, there are moral decisions that I've made in my life where I have acted, where I have freely chosen to do this and that. Um, so I, I don't think that all our actions are freely chosen, very far from it. I think most of our actions are not freely chosen. Um, but I reserve just a few of our actions that, are, that I believe are freely chosen. But you don't really want to know, well, now that all the hands have gone up now. <laughs> Okay, go on. Why? Why? <laughs> no, I, I, can't, I really can't get into that. Maybe we'll get into that in the next session, uh, if people really want to know. What were you going to ask? Well, can you un unconfuse me with this? I mean, you chose to write on the board rather than to type into the computer. Yeah. That was a choice you made. I didn't even... It didn't occur to me no, to... It, uh, okay. Eventually, it could have yeah, well, It could have occurred it to me, on yes. On basis more often than once. As a, after that, though, your pressing the button or writing on there causally produces something that we see. Well, yes, but that, that's where Bill's claim about there are things that... I mean, the fact is if the pens run out, I can write on here as much as I like. It wouldn't tell you anything. Um, no, I'm just wondering where, where, where I'm confused. I'm, 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 I'm trying to back up soft determinism. I mean, 
does it have to be one step? I'm saying it is two steps. The first step is something that you've chosen to do, the second step is the determinant step. Um, well, as Bill said, um, everything I choose to do um, is going to be underpinned by all sorts of laws of nature that enable... So, so, I mean, there's a law of nature that stops us all flying off our seats and hitting the ceiling. You know, as long as gravity is in place, we're, we're happy sitting where we are. And so the success of this lecture rather depends on the fact that you're not all floating around on the ceiling. Um, I don't know if that's answering your question, but it is addressing your point, I hope. Uh, just like going off topic, could you uh, explain or clarify further where you think the boundaries of empirical science are drawn in relation to understanding free will? Uh, what, what are its limitations? I, I don't fully understand the limitations of... I, um, I'll tell you what, could you ask that question again in the next session because we've only got the five minutes now and, and I think that might take slightly longer to address if I can even address it. Um, so will you ask it again? I'm, I, don't, I will answer it but not, not right now. Marianne, could you, could you help me please? I'm I don't know, I hope so. Okay. <laughs> I'm not as clear as I would like to be about came up yesterday and this session now about I can't even express it if it shows <laughs> clear. about the world, the two, the two things you posited about our view of the world and the world as it is, it was earlier. I'm just not clear enough about that because I think it's quite important to understand. It, it's very important and, and I certainly I hope I can help. Um, okay, the thing about being rational is we cannot not form beliefs. And as we go around the world, we're forming beliefs all the time. So at the moment, you believe that my arms are by my side. And now you believe that they're up above my head. OK, so you had one belief, you now have another belief. So you've revised your belief, you've dropped that belief, and you've formed that belief. And now you've dropped it again. Do you, do you see what I mean? We're, yeah. we're constantly forming and reforming and revising and changing our beliefs. And sometimes these are major beliefs, like we might come to believe in God or something like that. It might be a religious belief. But actually, the vast majority of our beliefs are more are beliefs like this. Um, you know, you, 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 as we go through the world, we form a picture of the world in our minds. And by picture of the world, I just mean a set of beliefs that together represent the world as being a certain way. And so there's the way the world is... Um, we might call that reality, if you like, the way the world is. And this I'm calling the world that we picture. But that would be there whether we were picturing the world or not. If all human beings were to disappear, this would be around. Okay, and then there's our picture of the world. So the set of beliefs that represent the world as being a certain way. So that's the world that we picture, and that's our picture of the world. And of course, you have a different picture of the world from me. Um, and everyone else in this room has a slightly different picture of the world to me. Uh, and 
there are lots of similarities. I mean, we share lots of beliefs. I mean, none of you in this room believes that zebras carry handbags, for example. Um, and I am quite confident in saying that, even though actually you didn't know till about um, 30 seconds ago that you do believe that zebras don't carry handbags, but you do, don't you? Um, actually, I may be not being fair there, because actually it might be that that belief is a logical consequence of things that you do believe, and you didn't believe it at all until I pointed it out to you. Um, so does that yeah, solve the problem? So now I'm confused about the... Oh dear, see what happens? You <laughs> push in a little bit here and a bit comes out there. Between observations and um, so that I would have said that this was an observation rather than a belief. Well, um, you make an observation and form a belief on the basis okay. of it, don't you? So is the colour problem that you were talking about the same uh, argument as um, a personal worldview? No, not quite. Um, there are two types of mental state. Um, there are propositional attitudes uh, and there are qualitative states or experiential states. Propositional attitudes are attitudes to propositions. So beliefs are propositional attitudes. Um, you might, desires are fears, perhaps. Um, so you believe that the chair is blue. You might desire that the chair be blue. You go out and buy some paint and paint it. Um, you might intend that the chair be blue. You might fear that the chair is blue. Oh God, anything but blue, um, etc. These, these are propositional attitudes. They're attitudes towards propositions. And you can, uh, the example I gave there is you have one proposition, the chair is blue, to which you can have different attitudes. And of course you can have the same attitude, belief, to different propositions. So I have the attitude of belief to the chair is blue, but I also to have it to the, there are craters on the moon. Okay, so two different propositions to both of which I have the attitude of belief. Um, but qualitative states are rather different. They include things like pains, tickles, um, the experience of being tickled rather than the, the actual tickling. Um, love. Um, all these states have um, a something that it's like to have them, don't they? So toothache has a certain quality to it, doesn't it? My belief that um, there are craters on the moon doesn't have any quality to it. It's just a proposition towards which I have an attitude. But, but my belief that um, Alan's shirt is pink, I, in order to have that belief, I've got to have a qualitative state, haven't I? I've got to have an experience as of the shirt being like that. And that causes me to form a belief, the shirt is pink. Is that, what so is that what not a perception than an observation? Um, well, it's, it, when I perceive his shirt as being like that, I form the observational belief. Okay. I see Alan's shirt being pink. Yeah. So, so it is, but but we're just using the words of, uh, sorry, the language of 
qualitative state versus propositional attitude or experience plus belief. Actually, I'll tell you what, we've got one and a half hours of questions afterwards, so why don't we go and have some coffee and then we come back here at quarter past eleven and have lots of questions then. Okay.